Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome, and thank you for taking time to join us for this three-part podcast series where healthcare and legal meet. I am Dr. Candice Pierce with Calibri Healthcare. Our goal for this series is to understand what the criminal trial against a nurse in Tennessee means for the practice of professionals within the healthcare system. Throughout the series, we're going to focus on the intersection of healthcare and the law. And in doing so, we are going to review the legal definition of negligence, the impact of cultural on reporting systems within hospitals, how we can support healthy and safe work environments, the impact of criminal lawsuits against healthcare professionals who have made errors, and how we can make improvements to healthcare systems to help reduce errors while also protecting ourselves as healthcare professionals from potential litigation. I'm joined today by two experts in both the legal and healthcare sectors, Dr. Margaret Carno and Dr. Jane Stowe. Dr. Margaret Carno, she currently practices in academia, teaching in graduate programs and in the clinical world as a pediatric nurse practitioner. She has a master's in jurisprudence, earned a PhD in nursing, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Dr. Carno? Sure, Candice. Um, and please call me Margaret. Um, I also have a master's in business administration, um, along with, as you said, my master's in jurisprudence in health law studies. My background has been in pediatric critical care, um, and I have also completed a post-master's in pediatric primary care nurse practitioner and acute care nurse practitioner. I've taught graduate ethics and public policy, along with undergraduate ethics and public policy. Those are some great achievements there, Margaret. I am really betting you do not have much free time since you're in the clinical and academic worlds. No, but I, you know, this is an important topic. Well, I want to say thank you for finding some time to talk with us today. We also have Dr. James Stowe joining us. Dr. Stowe finished his nursing degree and decided to pursue a doctor of jurisprudence. Currently, he serves as a director of an emergency department in Alabama. But before, um, you were a practicing attorney. So why did you decide to return back to the clinical setting? You know, uh, Candace, that's an interesting question. I get it quite often. I uh, really enjoyed practicing law and did so for a number of years, but my true passion was being at the bedside and taking care of patients and it just kept calling me year after year. And so I decided to uh, jump from the frying pan to the fire and get back into the hospital. And uh, while it's always uh, an interesting day in an emergency department, it uh, was really the right decision. for me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing and for taking time to be here with us today, Dr. Stowe. So as you can see, we have the privilege of having two experts in healthcare and law with us. So we're going to start with the discussion of the Nashville, Tennessee nurses verdict, which I'm sure we've all seen in the news over the last few weeks, months, and probably will continue to see over the next few years. Can you give the audience just a quick overview of what brought about this conversation that is going on all over the nation? that Redonda Vaught trial? 
Sure, Candace, I would be happy to. So in December of 2017, there um, was a situation where a nurse administered IV vecuronium instead of Versed. Um, the patient involved with this patient error was draw, uh, withdrawn, excuse me, from life support and passed away. Then in January, the hospital um, fires the nurse for not following the five rights of medication administration. Also late that January, the hospital settled with the patient's family um, and there was a do not disclose um, about the error publicly or the settlement. Then in October that year, there was an anonymous whistleblower that alerted state and federal agencies to the error. In October, also, the Tennessee Department of Health, the their nursing board, decided not to pursue disciplinary actions against the nurse um, and sends a letter to the hospital and the nurse affirming this decision. And I do want to stop to say this is all public knowledge within the um, public domain. Then late October, November, in response to the whistleblower, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, or CMS systems, conducted a surprise hospital inspection, which they are allowed to do. Then in later that same month, November of 2018, CMS releases details of the error, and the hospital submits a plan of correction. February of 2019, the Nashville um, prosecutor decides to charge the nurse with criminal reckless homicide and impaired um, adult abuse. March, the state investigators allege that the nurse at that time uh, made set 10 separate errors in connection with the medication error, including overlooking warning signs. Sep in September, the D Tennessee Department of Health, their nursing board reverses the prior decision and, um, not to pursue disciplinary charges against the nurse and charges her with unprofessional conduct, abandonment, neglecting a patient, and failing to document the error. In 2020, there were delays in the trial and disciplinary hearing due to our friend COVID. In March of 22, the trial started. Um, the end of March, the jury found the nurse guilty of criminal negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. And in May, um, was given three years probation um, by the jury. So that is a brief um, summary of the cases. I did not know if Dr. Um, if James wanted to add anything. You know, I think it's interesting. Uh, Vanderbilt did not report the error to any state or federal regulators as required by law. 
uh, uh, per a federal investigation. Hospital told the local uh, medical examiner's office that uh, the patient uh, died of natural causes, uh, with no mention of vecuronium, and uh, that's according to the patient's death certificate uh, and the Davidson County Chief Medical Examiner. So there are uh, some concerns throughout this uh, this uh, event, all the way through from time the event occurred, all the way through uh, reporting in the aftermath. Absolutely. So I've heard other healthcare professionals refer to this case as that cornerstone trial, that trial that's going to turn the tides of healthcare as far as criminal versus civil suits. And I've seen a few more lawsuits that have come out this year specifically against nurses, not necessarily against physicians yet. But do you think that this will be a historical case in that respect? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, there's so many factors here, which um, also include the healthcare system. I hope it does not. Nurses and all healthcare professionals work very hard to prevent errors, but we are also humans and not machines. And I will be honest, you can bring a lawsuit, and James can probably elaborate on this, but that doesn't mean it's going to be successful or that it's actually going to go through the court system. Margaret, I agree. Um, you know, the, the great thing about our legal system is anyone can seek justice for themselves. And, and that pretty much means anyone can bring any lawsuit. But the lawsuits have to have merit to proceed. Uh, and, and then there's uh, rules of law that have to follow. And that's why we have trials to determine the outcome. But I do think uh, the impact of this case, uh, at least initially, is going to rest a little bit on the verdict that was handed out. I think everybody waited with bated breath as far as was the nurse in this case going to spend uh, or get sentenced to jail time. And the fact that she was given three years probation when she could have uh, spent some significant time in jail uh, lessened the impact a, a little bit. But when I say that, I don't mean to say that it's less of an impact nationally, because I think what it does is it opens the door and it opens the door to people uh, using this verdict in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, there's techniques in the law where you can wait till the criminal trial is, is uh, completed because of the standard of care. And once it's completed. If you want to pursue a civil action after that, you've already established uh, the burden of proof. So it's much easier to, to uh, proceed with a, with a civil trial following a criminal trial. So I, I think this opens the doors, um, like Candace mentioned, where we are going to see things down the road. So where it ends up, I'm not real sure, but uh, the immediate impact, I think, is lessened by the punishment handed out, long-term impact, is going to be quite interesting to watch and see. So a word that I continually heard being brought up to this case was negligence. And two words that I'm continuing to hear you talk about are civil and criminal. 
So can you help us understand what those words mean? What is the difference between civil negligence and criminal negligence? Well, you basically have to break it down into negligence. And negligence in its core, um, we always hear in the medical world, medical malpractice. That's kind of the quote unquote term. If you want to bring it into the legal realm, it's really medical negligence. And medical is just the uh, arena where the negligence occurred. Uh, it could be construction negligence if you're building a home and there's issues. Uh, it could be any number of things uh, that could be negligent. Negligent is basically torn down into or broken apart into five elements, and that is a duty. A breach. There are two elements of causation, and so we'll just call them causation for now. We're not jumping into the the particulars that much. And then there's damage. So for the sake of today, we're going to say there's four elements: duty, a breach, uh, causation, and damage. And so, from a negligent standpoint, it is uh, duty. Did the nurse in this case have a duty to take care of her patient? You know, and, and I think that is pretty clear. Obviously, she did. You accept an assignment. You take care of patients. You have a duty to protect, to help heal and do no harm to those patients. Did the nurse breach that duty? You know, the trial lasted four days and it was a very uh, quick verdict. So I think uh, the jury in, in this case determined, yes, she did breach it. and I, and that's a pretty easy uh, conclusion. And what what I think a lot of medical professionals, and maybe specifically nurses, don't understand is when we fail to follow a policy or procedure or education that a hospital has provided, we're we're breaching that policy. We're breaching the hospital's best practices. So we're breaching that duty that we're supposed to uphold. Causation. It's kind of uh, very, very simply put, did my breach, did me not doing something or doing something the wrong way cause a damage? And that damage is typically harm in the healthcare setting. Was the patient harmed? Uh, it could be a small harm. It could be a uh, life-ending harm, uh, as this case experienced. Taking that negligence into the civil versus criminal world, you know, it's kind of broken down into uh, our criminal laws, okay? Civil versus criminal. Civil is, uh, I've been wronged. I'm going to take you to court and basically sue uh, for a wrongdoing. And the difference there is pretty much a burden of proof. In a civil action, you have to have, if you look at the scales of justice, the classic statutes or the uh, or even weighing things like in a, in a uh, kitchen on, on scales. Uh, if you just have a little bit, if you feel a little bit more of one side than the other, and if a little bit more, about 51%, then you've met the civil burden of proof. In a criminal trial, criminal negligence means that there are laws that the state or uh, federal government have passed that basically means there's jail time. Uh, involved in that. And that uh, burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Now, that doesn't have to mean it has to be 100% sure that they're guilty, but it does mean for the sake of today's conversation, you need 95% or more uh, percent convinced that that individual uh, was negligent. So a civil is basically a punitive lawsuit that is seeking money uh, for uh, a wrongdoing criminal. There are federal or state laws that have jail time imposed on those things. Uh, and the burden of proof is a little bit different. But the core negligence element, the duty, breach, causation, and damage is still the same. So what I think I'm understanding is really it doesn't matter if it was intentional or not intentional, it would still be seen as negligent, correct? That's correct. It's really interesting. You know, a lot of uh, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, physical therapists, uh, uh, techs, patient care techs in the hospital, when you go to talk to people about an error, Many times they'll they'll come right out and say, "Well, I didn't I, I didn't mean to do that. It was just an accident." And it's really interesting. These laws aren't uh, written with uh, an accident. It's very subjective. Did you have a duty? Did you breach that duty? And did your breach of that duty cause a harm? And so it is very eye opening for a lot of individuals to realize that. You know, an accident is an accident and accidents do happen. But when you take it into the court system, uh, it's much more uh, objective and not uh, taken into account. So uh, accidents are going to happen, but it's unfortunate that uh, the elements uh, take an accident and a non-attention out of the out of consideration. So in this case, it appears that the nurse did acknowledge the mistake. She acknowledged that it was not intentional. And then she followed those guidelines that were set out with the hospital system she worked for to report it. So Dr. Carno, can you take us a little further into that explanation of negligence, specifically with acknowledgement? So in order for there to be negligence, does there have to be an acknowledgement? And what does that acknowledgement actually mean? Candace, that's a great question. Um, no, there does not have to be an acknowledgement of the negligence. However, there have been some research studies and other data that have demonstrated if a healthcare provider and or healthcare system admits up front that there was an accident, uh, um, an incident, patients are less likely to sue. So I can't, you know, you still have the criminal issue, but from the civil um, perspective, when a provider, a healthcare professional, a healthcare system acknowledges that a mistake was made, And then they say what happened, exactly what happened, but they also include, you know, what is the follow-up for this? What is the system as a healthcare system looking at? Um, What, how are they going to prevent this in the future? What are they going to do for that individual patient? Are they going to monitor that patient? Are they going to provide their care 
um, for free because of the negligence, that open, honest communication that years ago, as a nurse, um, I was told never to admit my mistake if I made a mistake to the patients. Now the change um, with this concept of just culture means that, A, you know, as a nurse, I report my mistakes um, in the system. With um, guidance from the system, I admit my mistake to the um, patient. We discuss what's going to happen. We discuss the follow-up. We discuss what the um, institution is going to do to prevent this in the future. And what studies have shown is that when the healthcare team, healthcare professional, is more upfront with the mistake and gives all the information, the patient satisfaction with in relationship to the mistake is much higher than if the patient or family has to keep asking questions and feel that they were not told everything that happened, that information is being held back, or that the healthcare team profession is hiding stuff from them. Right. And we know that in this particular case that the nurse did, she did fill out the incident report. And my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that that incident report she filled out, did that, was that used in the actual trial? And by her completing this incident report, was that her acknowledgement of the things that she had done incorrectly, which may have led to her losing her license and now having uh, three years probation? Um, yes, the incident report is... Um, if you look for the, and it's public knowledge, the um, trial information and the discovery portion of the trial, all that is available for public knowledge. And yes, that incident report has been, um, was introduced into the trial. Now, I've always been told that incident, incident reports are to be non-punitive. And and actually to be kind of anonymous in a way, so to say, when you complete those. So um, when did incident reports become punitive? And is this something that healthcare professionals should keep in mind when they're completing these incident reports? I think for most um, institutions, they are non-punitive for the most part. Um, and I think when we talk about just culture um, and incident reporting within the institution, so I'm not talking from a criminal case, but within the institution that depending upon the incident, the institution can elect to do education, um, to do other things. Now, that being said, if there was a true disregard for the policies of the hospital, then the hospital has a right to protect the patients and the hospital and fire whatever health care provider 
or professional that is because a total disregard or repeated disregards for institutional policies puts everybody at risk and the hospital system or the healthcare system does have the right to um, fire that healthcare person. Absolutely. Uh, James, do you have uh, any thoughts on incident reports? It's really interesting. As a current director, we, uh, and having been a director in some very large uh, for-profit institutions, some uh, not-for-profit institutions, independent, uh, a number of them uh, in multiple states, it is interesting that most all of these organizations have a pretty robust system for reporting incidents or events. But most everyone also has a process where the receiving director or leadership of that department is to address them. So what we have is uh, objective data coming to or allegations coming to a director that they then follow up on. And then it's up to the director or the leadership of those departments to then in turn decide which level of discipline to hand out. So unless there is a defined just culture and not just a uh, broad brush just culture of let's report these incidents, let's educate, let's uh, really learn from our errors, but a granular down to each specific department process where I know that I'm going to follow a certain defined algorithm when distributing discipline where only gross negligence, only those things that are truly out there that uh, harm the patient really get the tough punishment and that we then support the nurse for acknowledging acknowledging a uh, issue, a mistake, an error, and then create learning opportunities from that. Uh, it comes down to medicine is one of the few areas where we can we can apply the same hard laws and rules for everybody, criminal, civil, all that kind of good stuff. But if we don't actually take the time to stop, educate, and uh, approach it from a learning air, uh, learning aspect, then we're not going to prevent those things in the future. So it's just a very different business than, than most others. That's all the time we have for episode one. But I think that brings into the discussion something really important, and that's culture, which we will discuss in episode two. In this first episode, we discuss the definition of negligence and the acknowledgement of our mistakes. Please join us for episode two, where we will take a closer look at culture and the effects that an unhealthy or toxic culture can have within healthcare, especially when there's a fear of legal repercussions. This is Candace Pierce for Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. 
Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.